0: Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, well, this gentleman, well, he is an author of more than 50 books. His name, Dr. Eric Mizell, And the two of them will be chatting about his latest book, The Power of Daily Practice. So tune in as they chat about daily practice as an invaluable way to make daily meaning and to live your life purposes fully. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And welcome, welcome, everyone. Good morning. You're you're listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. And my website is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. So I just have to start the show today by saying, yeah, we're a little bit late getting on the air this morning. Um, After six years of doing the show, this is the first time this has happened where we've had um, difficulty connecting to such a degree with our guest, and it's not our guest's fault. I accept
1: <laughs> full responsibility, Sonny. Oh
0: no, just it's so not <laughs> your fault? Yes,
1: absolutely, it is one hundred percent. That's what you do. You accept full responsibilities, and then we move on, because that's well. No, life. it's just <laughs>
0: we're just having some technical <laughs> difficulties today. So I am joining by phone. We're on a conference line, so mm-hmm. I may not be as crisp as we usually are when we're using Skype, and that is okay. Um, One of the guiding principles in my coaching tradition is to live in perpetual creative response to whatever is present, which actually is a um, perfectly fitting principle for our show today on the power of daily practice, because our guest um, is a a creativity coach, among many other things. Um, And so um, (laughs) I'm going to just say Dr. Eric first, because we didn't even have a chance to really connect before going on air as we usually do. And I think I've been mispronouncing your last name, and I apologize. Do you mind sharing your full name just so I get it right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Let me take full responsibility for my name, at least. Uh, (laughs) It's Maisel, Eric Maisel.
0: Maisel.
1: May and Gazelle.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you for clarifying that, and I apologize that I did not um, say your name properly when we connected initially this morning.
1: (laughs) my mother and I never agreed so so there's no there's no problem. <laughs> okay,
0: awesome. Well, let me go ahead and share your full bio and we will dive into our interview. Uh, so Eric Mazel, sorry. <laughs> you may have to correct me a couple times. Uh oh, Eric Mazel, PhD is the author of more than 50 books on creativity and personal growth, including The Power of Daily Practice, which is what we'll be talking about here today. Uh, Dr. Maisel is widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach. He's a former psychotherapist, an active creativity coach, and a critical psychology advocate. He writes the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today. He lectures nationally and internationally and delivers keynotes for organizations like the International Society for the Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry and the American Mental Health Counselors Association. He also facilitates creativity and deep writing workshops around the world. And he lives just down the road from me. (laughs) He lives in Walnut Creek, California. And to find out more, uh, you can visit his website, which is Eric Mazel. And I will spell that for you, E-R-I-C. Last name is M-A-I-S-E-L, ericmazel.com. And you may also want to check out, um, he has a website for, uh, his philosophy of life, which I really look forward to hearing more about, kirism.com, and that's K-I-R-I-S-M. So, <laughs> uh, Dr. Mazel, let's go ahead and start a little bit with your background. Uh, I see that you have worn many hats in your life. Um, you've been a drill sergeant, a psychotherapist, a counselor. You're now a creativity coach. And I'm just curious how you went through all those stages to get where we sit today.
1: Well, I started out as a math and science boy. As a young person, I thought I would be doing physics or astronomy in high school and starting out in college. But somewhere along the line, that wasn't human enough for me, I was more interested in human things than in science. I flunked out of college. I started college young at the age of 16, flunked out of college. This was Vietnam War time, so I then enlisted in 1965, went into the Army, came out in 1968, had no idea what I was doing, and got my first degree in philosophy, which is one of those things you do when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but at about the age of 24, I started writing my first novel. So my first life was as a fiction writer and also as a ghost writer. I actually lived by writing in my 20s, which is hard to do and unusual. But at some point, I wasn't making enough money from writing, so I retooled and became a California-licensed family therapist. And I maintained the license for a long time, but I didn't do therapy because I sort of saw through the therapy model. That's another conversation, probably. But I didn't believe that I was diagnosing and treating mental disorders. I thought I was just helping folks dealing with normal challenges in living. And right from the beginning, I started working with creative performing artists as my specialty. So I segued from psychotherapy to creativity coaching, and I've been working with creative performing artists as a coach for 30-plus years now.
0: Wow. And so I just have to ask, because we're talking about the book, The, Day- the Power of Daily Practice, How has a daily practice impacted your writing? Because you're incredibly prolific. Fifty-plus books? I I mean, what? You must be up there with Deepak Chopra. There are only a few people in the world who've written that many.
1: Yes, I write every day. That's my daily practice. Um, Let me give you a Pavarotti quote. Pavarotti said, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline. It's devotion, and there's a big difference. And That's a good headline to let listeners take in. We're not really talking about discipline here. I'm not a particularly disciplined person, but I am devoted to the things that I'm passionate about that I think are important in life to my own life purposes. So I do show up every day to my writing and to the other things that are important to me, not just writing, but activism and service and other kinds of things. And I've been doing that consistently for the last 50 years or so, so if you just count words, you know, if you do a couple hundred words a day, you'll do a book a year, and you'll have 50 books in 50 years. (laughs) It works pretty straightforwardly. Once once you buy the idea of daily practice, actually engage it. Whatever the daily practice is, it doesn't have to be a creativity practice. It could be anything, a warrior practice, a health practice, a personality upgrade practice, whatever it is. If you attend to something in a daily way, you actually get really good at that something.
0: Yes, yeah, and I feel like before we go any further, because it's it's mentioned throughout the book, and I'm incredibly curious, but um, you you write in the book that the best way to meet any challenges that arise with a daily practice may be to anchor that daily practice in the bigger context of a comprehensive philosophy of life, and you have developed one of those. Can you share with us more about that, what we need to know about it, or what will be relevant for our conversation today?
1: Sure. Of course, it would would take too long to say a lot, but let me just give a few headlines. One headline is that it's essentially, curism is essentially an updated existentialism. I grew up in in the era of French existentialism, the 1960s. Camus and Sartre were the names that were familiar to me back then. Existentialism talked a lot about personal responsibility, which I believe in, but it stopped short in talking about daily practices and other ideas, which I thought could be elaborated upon, and that's what I've done in Curism. So here are a couple of headline ideas. There is no purpose to life. (laughs) There are exactly and only our life purpose choices. And most people, or to say that more simply, the things that are important to us, And most people have never really identified those things that are important to them, so to speak, made a list of the things that are important to them. And I think that's one of the important steps in life is to actually identify our life purpose choices. They shift over time, by the way. So that list at the age of 20 that you make may not be the same list that you make at 45. But whatever list you make, that's the list for that day. And that helps you understand where you want to pour your life resources into, those life purpose choices. So that's A, a paradigm shift from the idea. We've had this metaphor for thousands of years of the purpose to life. So it's a paradigm shift from that idea, the purpose to life, or the purpose of life, to life purpose choosing. That's A. And then B is a similar idea. There's a shift to be made from Seeking meaning, which is a metaphor we've had for thousands of years, books with titles like The Search for Meaning or The Search for Man's Meaning or Man's Search for Meaning. The Mm -hmm. paradigm shift from that to the idea of making meaning, that there's nothing to look for. There are just our decisions about how to coax meaning into existence. There's a lot to be said about this, including ideas that flow from this like meaning naturally comes and goes. So if you check in with yourself at a certain moment when you're not having the experience of meaning, naturally, life is going to feel meaningless, and that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal if you understand that the experience of meaning comes and goes. And let me just add one more headline, because I know we could go on and on with this, but one further headline is that things that we do in the service of meaning, in the service of our meaning needs, do not necessarily feel meaningful in the doing. This is a very big idea and a very big point. It helps explain why people stop doing their creative work or stop doing those things they consider other their life purposes, because they're not getting the experience of meaning out of it. If you're trying to write a novel, let's say it takes you 300 days to write that novel. For 200 of those days, you may not be liking your novel at all and, and not be finding the experience of writing meaningful at all. And many people will quit because they were hoping or they expected that if they were doing something important to them, it ought to feel meaningful. But no, there's no guarantee that when we do something that's actually important, it will also feel meaningful in the doing. It takes a lot of maturity to come around to this understanding, I think, that we should do things because they are our life purpose choices, whether or not they're feeling meaningful.
0: Yeah, I I like one of my favorite quotes looking um, uh, when we're talking about meaning. um, You write that in curism, we try to know better than to make too big a deal of meaning having left the room. We are confident that it will return for fleeting seconds at least, that it is no big deal, that it fled, and that it's more likely to return if we make uh, what in curism we call meaning investments and if we seize meaning opportunities. So what do you mean by meaning investments?
1: A meaning investment is the idea that something that had previously garnered us the experience of meaning is likely to garner us that experience again, Mm. and therefore, let's do that thing. Let's invest our time and energy in something where we experienced meaning before. And I don't mean necessarily big things like writing your novel or starting your business. If it felt meaningful to hold your child's hand crossing the street, which it probably did, then that will remind you to spend some time with your child rather than spending all of your time at your business, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So whatever we've actually experienced as meaningful in the past is a kind of guide or blueprint to what we might experience as meaningful in the future. And until we sit down and do this thinking, we don't really have a clear picture of what we've actually experienced as meaningful. We kind of think we know, but when we sit down, we discover that we don't really know, for instance, We may casually think that our Ph.D. program probably felt meaningful, but then when we think about it, we realize it didn't feel that meaningful at all. Whereas sitting with our Aunt Rose and hearing family secrets and family stories, that really felt meaningful. So once we get a clear picture of where we've really experienced meaning in life, then we can try to coax meaning into existence by doing those sorts of things again and by, in a daily way, taking opportunities to make meaning, seizing meaning opportunities. Things where we're not sure that we're going to get the experience of meaning, but we have some hunch we might, those are the things to try. So that's all by way of saying meaning is an activity, meaning-making. It's a verb, really. And we make meaning by doing these two things, by investing ourselves in places where we've made meaning before, and that's what I'm calling meaning investments, and by kind of guessing where meaning might reside and, and trying to seize those meaning opportunities.
0: Yes, and, and one more thing that I wanted to ask about um, while we're still talking about that broader life philosophy of curism, and I see how, that it ties into daily practice. Um, I'm just going to read a quote here about um, curists, and you say, curists live a life of action and courage as absurd rebels who have decided to matter. And this idea of you mattering or the individual mattering, Um, and you also write that, you know, in regards to your daily practice, maybe a voice says, why bother? That's a very powerful voice. It represents your sincere doubt that you matter, that you count. Do you mind just saying a little bit more about this idea of mattering and why that's important to this daily practice that we'll talk about?
1: Sure. So I think we're all postmodern enough to have our doubts that we so to speak really matter. I think mm-hmm. most people someplace inside of them kind of believe that we're just excited matter, that the universe could make us and did, and here we are, and we're not all that important, etc. And so we have to counteract those true feelings by saying something to ourselves like, it doesn't matter if the universe has a purpose for us or not I can conceive of my purposes. I can decide to matter. One of the analogies I use is in the days before D-Day, we don't really care what's on Eisenhower's mind. We don't care if he's depressed or anxious or whether he feels like he matters or anything. We just need him to get the invasion right. We need him to do his work, so to speak, because it's important work. Now, we don't conceptualize our own work as that important, as important as an invasion. We don't conceptualize it that way, but we ought to. In our own way of looking at our life, we should, we should see this as a project and that our heroism is required and that something like resistance to the world's humbug is demanded of us, etc. In other words, we want to elevate our decision to matter to that high bar place of really believing that we make a difference. And that's why I say, that's why I use the phrase absurd, absurd rebellion, because it's kind of absurd to believe that we do kind of, that we do make that kind of difference. But nevertheless, that's, our, that's the belief system we want to be holding, that we can and do make a difference.
0: Mm, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, and, you know, let's go ahead and dive into this book that you have just released. It's The Power of Daily Practice. And um, before we do that, um, usually we would take a break right about now, but since we got a little bit of a late start, um, are you okay if we forego the break and just continue our conversation? Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, Okay, so... Um, Let's talk, uh, when we're saying daily practice, for purposes of our conversation and how you define it, what is a daily practice?
1: Well, it's straightforwardly something that you consider important that you get to every day. It's that that simple a definition. But it's the daily part. Well, I guess both parts need underlining. They're two separate ideas. There's the idea of practice, and, and to my mind, A solid practice is built out of many elements, and in the book I describe 20 elements of practice, and of course they're not to be memorized, but I think if you read the book you get the sense of how these elements of practice, elements like playfulness and honesty and self-direction and intensity, how, how these various elements come together to make for this thing I'm calling a practice. then the first part of it is the daily part and the reason that's so important as i say i've been working with creative performing artists for more than 30 years now and and what i know is the following that as soon as they miss two or three days of whatever it is is their creative or performing effort they're likely then to miss weeks months or years even whole decades when we stop doing something that is relatively hard to do like writing our symphony or writing our novel or doing our suite of paintings. If, if we stop doing something that's relatively hard to do, it's very likely that we're not going to, come, to be, come back to it for a very long time. The only real antidote to that problem or solution to that problem is to not leave the work for consecutive days. It's to do the work every single day, <clears throat> including on the weekends, because I don't think our meaning needs or our life purposes end on Friday. So it's it's really a seven day a week thing that we, and it doesn't really matter if we lose a day. That's not the issue. The issue is that once we lose a day or two, we're so likely to lose long stretches of time. So, the way to prevent yourself from not living your life purposes and disappointing yourself and not making yourself proud, the, the way to defeat all of those difficulties is to show up. Every single day.
0: Yes, and I just want to make a note about how the book is structured um, at this point. So you've got the part one is talking about all of these beautiful elements, these twenty elements of a daily practice, and they really do. It's I want to explore those a little bit more because there's there are you know they seem to balance each other: seriousness with playfulness intensity with lightness. Um, So I'd love to explore that more. But um, the part one of the book is around the elements of a daily practice and probably includes creating various types of daily practices. And so when I picked this book up, I was so surprised to see so many different types of practices. And I really kind of, it got the creative juices flowing. I thought, wow, this is, I am going to return to this for my own life. Um, for various ideas about different things to incorporate. But do you mind speaking a little bit about how the book is structured and some of those, the ideas like what daily practices could be? Because I think maybe for our audience here at KK&W, many of them have a spiritual practice. Exactly. Yeah, what you list, it runs the gamut.
1: Yeah, well, it connects to the idea of multiple life purposes. As soon as you let go of the idea that there is a purpose to life and you realize that they're only your life purpose choices, well each life purpose choice can connect to a daily practice. doesn't mean you're going to get to each one of them every single day, but there's a simple, straightforward connection between our life purposes and our daily practices. So let's say that one of our life purposes is to write our novel or write our novels. Then clearly you would create a creativity practice, which I believe should be first thing each day, and we could talk about why I think that's the case. But so, there's naturally a creativity practice. But there are all kinds of other practices. And I would say, of the, let's say, 18 or so practices I describe, some of the most popular ones, in addition to a creativity practice, because my audience is primarily creative and performing artists, some of the other popular ones are a warrior practice, which I described in the book. An awful lot of people, when they read about a warrior practice, they realize that they need that, that they need to. Take risks, build their self confidence, build up their self image. And all of those kinds of tasks can be uh, subsumed under a warrior practice. So that's one kind of popular practice. Now, there's a health practice. An awful lot of people suffer from chronic ailments of one sort or another. Awful lot of people. Almost all of my clients are suffering from some kind of health difficulty or another. So actually penciling in a, health, a daily health practice is a smart idea. And another one that folks are liking, and this one's going to take a tiny bit of explaining, but the idea of a personality upgrade practice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's the idea of spending a little time each day transforming ourselves into the person we've always intended to be. And let me just speak to this a tiny bit to make a little more sense of that one. In my vision of life, uh, life is made up of three personality is made up of three constituent parts, and that's original personality. That's how we come into the world already. And everybody who's had kittens or, or puppies or kids knows that creatures come into the world already themselves, very much themselves. So there's original personality. Then there's formed personality. That's the way we stiffen over time and become our kind of repetitive selves. And then there's what I call available personality. That's our remaining freedom to be the person we want to be. So this personality upgrade practice is, is in essence, us using our available personality to kind of unstiffen our formed personality and maybe finally transform ourselves into the person we've always intended to be. So those are some of the kinds of practices. There are other ones, like, as you said, spiritual practices and business-building practices and activism practices. Anything that we hold important, anything that we designate as one of our life purpose choices can be easily translated and ought to be translated into a daily practice.
0: Yeah, and I, I would love to. I love stories, and one of the ones in the book that stood out to me since you were just talking about personality upgrade, because I like that concept and the example you used, I thought, if you don't mind sharing it, um, I believe uh, it was a baritone opera singer, uh, Frederick, I believe, and he wanted a, I mean, it seemed like he needed a bit of a personality upgrade, and I was hoping maybe you could share his example as what it looks like in a real human you life. You actually have to, to refresh my
1: mind as to as to what the outcome was, and
0: then, oh. then I will get
1: the picture in my mind if you can
0: refresh my mind. Yes, of, of course, yes. So he was an opera singer. It sounded like he was having a lot of drama and um, a lot of infighting, or he wasn't treating some of the, his students so well, or he was having conflict with other people. And he, you had pointed out to him that maybe um, that if the personality upgrade practice, and one of the things that really stood out about it was, it sounded very how do you really change a person's personality using those, those what you just described? But you said, let's forget about change. Let's focus on practice instead. And so it just seemed very um, approachable in the way that you presented it. And he was able to incorporate maybe teaching a master class um, uh, and being kinder to those up-and-coming opera singers that were um, you know, c- coming up the ranks behind him. So there were some little things. So instead of trying to focus yep. on, you've got to change everything well, you just, about you yourself. Just did it. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. You
1: just described yeah. it. <laughs> but let me let me <laughs> just piggyback a bit onto that. But but that I think you've you've said the whole bit there very clearly. But let me just add the following, and that is, this is again another simple idea. And many of these are very simple ideas. Once you form an intention, and let's say the intention is to be a better person. Once you form an intention, there are two things that need to happen next. You need to align your thoughts with that intention, and you need to align your behaviors with that intention. It's a very simple formula, but it's actually the correct formula. So the thing you would do, let's say you decide that you that you just want to be kinder, then you, then you have to start thinking thoughts that align with that idea. Every time you, a cruel thought comes up or the desire to be critical comes up, You have to to hear that thought, notice that thought, and dispute it, and substitute the thought that you're actually looking for. I'm intending to be that kind of person. And then you want to start to align your behaviors. If you're not acting in a certain way, nothing is really changing. It's just kind of wishful thinking or fantasy land to believe you've changed if your actions haven't changed. In coaching, we always start with small actions that those are the sensible things to try in the coming week, some small action. So when I say align your behaviors with your intention, those behaviors to begin with will be small things like not leading a master class next week but beginning to conceptualize what that master class might look like and maybe looking for the venue, taking the first steps in some direction. So that's all by way of saying it's pretty straightforward. Once you identify a thing that you would like to change and you're now holding that as your intention, if you can do the work of aligning your thoughts with that intention and aligning your behaviors with that intention, you will actually make that change.
0: Mm. Yeah. and and. One of the other things that came up and one of the themes that it seems like you may encounter a lot in your work with folks around creating a daily practice is this resistance to the idea of discipline and, and um, things having to look the same every day, which you explain very beautifully that it doesn't have to um, be the exact same, rigid. So I am, I'm curious how you respond to the folks that you work with. Around resistance to discipline and how you actually present it in a way that's a little more approachable?
1: Well, I always start from the life purposes place that um, if they can remember that there are things that are important to them, that becomes the motivational juice. That's A, just remember, reminding them or asking them to believe that they matter and that their efforts matter. That's place A. Place B is to have a conversation about process. Virtually everyone will say, oh, I love process or I honor the process or the creative process or what have you, but typically that's going in one ear and out the other. They're not actually understanding how process works. And how process works is that we need to have real permission to make mistakes and messes and not do things well and have failures and all of that there's that anxious perfectionistic streak in so many people and they don't want to get to the work without a guarantee that the work is going to turn out well Mm -hmm. and there are no such guarantees not only are there no such guarantees a lot of the work won't turn out well so i have to slowly talk people through the truth of the matter that if they write 50 books they're not going to write 50 masterpieces ain't happening Maybe there'll be three masterpieces and 23 decent books and 18 not-so-good books, etc. That's the yeah. truth about process. Even our, even our greatest geniuses only turn out a handful of masterpieces, and the rest of the work is semi-ordinary. So a lot of what I'm talking about with folks is sort of bringing them in, into that place of understanding that the whole task is showing up and that they shouldn't attach to outcomes. It's, of course, a little more complicated than that because there is this dance of attachment and detachment going on when we do these things. We want to attach in the sense of have ambitions for our work, for our life, have goals, have dreams, have desires. We want all of that, but we can't attach to the, to the wants. We, have, we want the wants, but then we have to just show up and do the work, and whatever happens, happens let me give you a quick analogy let's say that we have dreams for a sunny vacation let's say we're living in a rainy place and you may know something about
0: this
1: (laughs) so let's say we're living in a rainy place and we're really looking forward to a sunny vacation it's fine to look forward to that that keeps us motivated through the rainy days but if when the plane starts to land in jamaica it's raining Then we have to let go of our desire for a sunny vacation, and then we have to be able to conceptualize a a wonderful rainy day vacation. So it's fine to have dreams and goals and aspirations and all of that, but mainly we have to show up. So this was a very (laughs) long-winded response to to your question, which is I really help people get into the, the frame of mind of daily practice by focusing steadfastly On the idea of showing up it's it's that simple
0: yeah and I in um, when I picked up the book and I was I have to say I had a little bit of fear because I have a spiritual practice and we're actually in the middle of a practice your practice challenge um, in a little group I run and um, I was so afraid that I would find that how I was doing my practice was wrong um, because I generally I carve out the time, but I have a basket of things or a toolkit that I draw from depending on what I need most. And I love how you explained in the book. I would I would love if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit more about what it actually looks like and this analogy sure. that you used, which was beautiful, around it just being like a special drawer that you keep um, very sacred.
1: Exactly, and and whatever is in the drawer may change, or there may be many things in the drawer. I'll give a simple example. Um, If you're a writer and you're on deadline and your book is due two weeks from now, you may have to make your daily practice be something that exhausts you. You may need the six-hour-a-day writing daily practice in the service of getting this book completed. That may be what's required of you. In curism, we talk about doing the next right thing. That's like the whole, all of ethics captured in one little phrase, do the next right thing. So for that person, (laughs) doing the next right thing is spending six hours a day on that book for those three weeks. Okay, then you turn in the book. Well, now your writing practice may involve no words at all. It may be just two minutes of opening up to your next book. It may be you walking around the lake for three consecutive days allowing yourself to dream your next book into existence. Those are both daily practices, and those are both creativity daily practices. Those are both writing-related daily practices, but they're completely apples and oranges. One is a a put-down-your-head-get-the-words-written-six-hours-a-day daily practice, and the other is I don't need any words written. I'm just opening up to the universe daily practice. Both serve the writer. They're completely different, but both serve...
0: Yeah. And that was what I loved was in reading this, I felt so, it was like a sigh of relief, the way that you described it. Um, it, it if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about logistics, because um, I think some people wonder, well, do I have to do it in the morning? It Does it have to be the same time every day? Does it have to be the same amount of time? And and where do I do it? Does it have to be the same place? So, do you mind sharing some of the common questions that you get around logistics of creating and tracking sure. well, a daily? No,
1: to all of those things. It doesn't have to be the same. In it, the only thing that I recommend strongly is that it be daily. And even there, some things are have to be intermittent. Let's say you have divided parenting and your kids are, you know, with your wife or husband three days of the week and with you four days of the week, well, then there may be a parenting daily practice that really is only relevant for the four days you have the kids. So that's still, to my mind, a daily practice in the sense that it's every day when it makes sense for it to be. So even, even yeah. daily has some flexibility in it. It's really an appropriate practice. I'm holding that word appropriate as daily but I think folks get get my drift here, and that is to do the thing that's important as often as it makes sense to do and as, as often as it's possible to do. As to some of these other questions, I'll give you a sort of a characteristic response to the following. So if I'm speaking with a new client, let's say a new writer, and we've decided she's agreed that she now wants to resume her novel and she's going to try to work on it every day during the coming week, the next question will be from me will be, you know, how, how long do you think you might want to work on it every day? And virtually every client, and this is sort of miraculous that every client would say the same thing, virtually every client will say 20 minutes. Hmm. And I think they pick that number because they don't want to disappoint themselves again by picking a very large number, like two hours or four hours or, or some number that they know they're actually not going to get to. So they're picking a safe number, and in the back of their mind, in the back of my mind, is the idea that if they spend those 20 minutes, they'll actually probably stay much longer. So one of the sort of basic ideas around daily practice is begin small, if if that's the way that makes sense to you to make sure that you don't disappoint yourself. And as a headline, and this is an important headline, do not need to think that you need to be making progress. Mm. Progress is one of those difficult, dangerous words. It's a very American word. The transcendental philosophers of the 1700s and 1800s kept hammering that America was a place of progress. Their image was the image of the upward spiral. We're always supposed to be going forward. And so we've taken this in in a deep way that we're always supposed to be making progress. But that's really antithetical to the creative process and to most processes. We're not always making progress. So that's another place where I have to help folks who are thinking about daily practice not get stuck is they have to be okay that if for five consecutive days they don't have the feeling of having made progress, they still must celebrate that they showed up for those five days. There is still something there to celebrate even if they didn't, so to speak,
0: make progress. Hmm. Yeah, um, that was another comforting comforting thing that I read in the book. Um, And being comfortable with um, the benefits that just by showing up, um, the benefits that come from that. Um, without necessarily having some end goal or progress, or uh, the, the progress that you mentioned being right. necessary every single time.
1: I, I hope folks are, are clear what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying to not be thinking too much about progress, that's not to say we won't actually make progress, we will. You know, we may play that chord on the guitar poorly for those three consecutive months and then suddenly one day we play it well. We, All of the progress happened, so to speak, overnight, But, of course, Mm -hmm. it isn't overnight. There's a a Tchaikovsky quote I like, which is, um, I'm only inspired every fifth day, but I only get that fifth day if I show up the other four days. Yes. It's a beautiful quote because it speaks to the way that wonderful things happen. They happen instantaneously, surprisingly, magically, but only because we've been doing the work. they Mm -hmm. they don't typically, E equals MC squared does not come to someone who isn't thinking about physics five days a week, seven days a week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so let's say there is someone that comes to you and they are not trying to write a novel or do, they don't have a specific um, something that they're working on and they, but they just know that they want to incorporate a daily practice into their life and they're not um, it, it doesn't fall in some very specific category. How do you advise them on picking a daily practice? It's, it's circling, a,
1: I'll, I'll say it in two different ways. One is circling back to the idea I've said a few times over, and that's what's important to you. Yeah. The daily practice is going to flow from your identifying what's important to you. If you can't identify anything that's important to you, that's a meaning crisis, isn't it? No. That, that's a, that has to be addressed before we can get to daily practice stuff. If I say to you what's important to you and you go, absolutely nothing, well, then we have to stop right there and and see where we can get with respect to that difficulty that you're expressing. But let's say that you can eventually name some things that are important to you. Well, then we would craft or fabricate a daily practice around those. We We would turn into actions or into nameable daily practices, whatever you've said is important to you. So A is to look at what's important to you. B is to... Refresh your memory as to what you loved as a child. I think that's a very valuable exercise for folks who are stuck not knowing exactly where to go in life or what's important to them. Most of us fell in love with something when we were young, Some, something it wasn't, we weren't taught to fall in love with it. We fell in love with books or music or science or dance or visual imagery or or cinema or something at the age of four, five, six, seven. We were that kid sitting in the corner reading a book or, you know, working our microscope or what have you. By reminding ourselves about what we loved back then, those were very pure loves. By reminding ourselves about what we loved back then, I think that helps us begin to frame and identify what our current daily practices might be. So those are a couple of ways into the idea of constructing a daily practice when you're not exactly sure what it might be.
0: Yes. Yeah, and so, you know, I know we have just, um, well, we've got a few, about five minutes left. Um, I want to make sure we address part three of the book. Of course, as mentioned, the the book is structured in three parts, and part one is on the elements of daily practice, um, and part two are some wonderful suggestions on various types of daily practice. And then, of course, you can't have all that without part three, which are all the challenges and obstacles that folks run into. And what are some of the main ones that, that our listeners should know about as they're creating a daily practice?
1: One is how noisy our mind is all the time, what Buddhists call monkey mind, that noisiness. So um, I always help suggest to clients and help them try to get a little quieter in a variety of ways. Part of that noise is the way that anxiety threads through the process and threads through our life. People are more anxious than they realize. Of course, in these times, we understand how anxious we are, but even in better times or less difficult times, human beings have always been anxious because it's part of our early warning system against danger, and life can feel dangerous. So to say that simply, one of the challenges to daily practices, ambient anxiety, and to deal with that folks need an anxiety management tool or two that actually works for them, some breathing technique, some cognitive technique, some visualization, something that reduces their experience of anxiety. Another challenge is our defensiveness, the ways in which we don't want to see the truth about our situation or ourselves, so there's some Effort needed to reduce our defensiveness, to, to crack through our own denial so that our practice can be honest and self directing. One that I just mentioned, the felt sense of a lack of progress, that can be a challenge. Another one that I mentioned a while ago, and that's that in our daily practice, if we're being honest, We'll make lots of mistakes and messes. We'll we'll play that chord poorly, or we'll let's say we have a business building practice. We'll send out an email, and as soon as we send it out, we'll realize we sent we said the wrong thing, mm-hmm. and that can that can that can hurt us. That can disappoint us and make us not want to send out the next email and not want to show up tomorrow to our business building practice. So lots of self forgiveness around mistakes and messes. Lots of ease around that. The personality Mm -hmm. upgrade bit. Most people need to be better risk takers to get to their daily practice. I'm sure you know and I'm sure your listeners know that the world's number one phobia is not fear of flying or fear of spiders or fear of snakes. It's fear of public speaking. Yeah, (laughs) Human beings are afraid to show themselves. So if your daily practice involves you needing to show yourself, well, then you're going to have to deal with that. Personality difficulty, that fear of exposure. Then there's a lack of skill. We may be trying to do something. I want to say an anecdote quickly because I like the anecdote. Mm-hmm. In that moment when Van Gogh stopped being a preacher, he was a preacher first, and he was um, dropped from from the pre- preaching rank, ranks because he was too passionate a preacher. He was in an existential extreme moment and contemplated suicide, and then remembered that he loved painting. This is in his late twenties, and so now he decides he's going to be a painter. But instead of just painting, which is what most people would do, they would just start painting or maybe take a class or something. He he decided that he didn't have the skill set to make the paintings he could already see in his mind's eye, and so he spent a full year just making strokes just making gestural mm. strokes so that he could quickly capture a cypress or an elm or, or anything in nature. So he, was, mm-hmm. he did this super truthful thing of realizing that he didn't have the skills yet to do the thing that would be the core of his daily practice once he had those skills. So, again, a long-winded way of saying something that can be a challenge to our daily practice is not yet having the skills and having to acquire those skills Lots of body sensations come up um, that cause us to want to leave. And, of course, self-talk, the things we say to ourselves, even as we're trying to be in that moment, like, boy, I don't think this is working, and I don't really think I matter, and why am I doing this, and doesn't the grass need mowing, and thousands of things that we say to ourselves to sabotage ourselves and cause us to leave the moment So those are some of the challenges to daily practice. There there are lots of challenges, but they're all meetable. They all can be met. Um, If you circle back around to your desire to matter, and if you circle back around to the simple understanding that showing up is what counts, then all of these challenges to daily practice can be met.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a beautiful place to bring the show to a close because we've got less than a minute left. Um, I have been talking today with Dr. Eric Maisel. Uh, his latest book, The Power of Daily Practice, is available. Uh, the website for his work is ericmazel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L. Um, and, of course, uh, to find out more about Curism, that website is curism.com, K-I-R-I-S-E-L. Dot com. Uh, Dr. Mazel, thank you so much for being here amidst all the technical difficulties. We made it.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. You have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.